Um, so for those of you um, who maybe haven't gone through the cycle of feasts before, today happens to be um, Shabbat Shuvah, uh, which is the Shabbat in between Yom Teruah or Rosh Hashanah um, and Yom Kippur. And um, I have no idea why the timing would work out this way that uh, that God would set it up so that I could share with you about our year in Israel on this Shabbat, but uh, we're just going to go with it and see what God does. Um, but um, I will say that um, uh, thank you for this opportunity to share this with you uh, because it's hard to describe sometimes your experiences and what to draw from them. And in a lot of ways, I'm still processing what exactly happened this last year. Um, so let me tell you a little bit of how it all got set up um, that uh, that we had a year in Israel. Um, some things just take time to kind of work themselves out. We've been praying about it for a long time, and uh, for us, we certainly desire that we could live in Israel. Um, it's not available to us at the moment. Uh, but we did... Um, as I looked for other opportunities, I'd considered that maybe I could start a business in Israel, um, looking more the secular routes. As Messianics, it's very easy for us to kind of stay overly religious and uh, not think about what other opportunities might be available. So I looked at some simpler, more practical and secular routes. Um, and uh, it's very easy. Um, there are some business opportunities in Israel to start a capital of the world. Um, and I have a startup idea that I'm still going to work on trying to get a patent for my idea. But um, but as I tried to go down that route, it wasn't available yet. And, uh, and so I decided, all right, let's try for a student visa. And uh, we had some things line up and worked out. And so what I did is I went to Israel for a year to go back to school to get a master's of business. And, um, and so we shopped around a little bit, and we decided to end up in Beersheba. And uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Beersheba is pretty far to the south. And um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Beersheba today, although I could. Um, I could I could tell you a lot about um, just Israel and the different places. And, and uh, Beersheba is an interesting place that even a lot of Israelis don't want to live in. Uh, but we thought it was wonderful. Um, and um, But I will tell you a little bit. Um, I had uh, – I got to – really get to know some uh, friends in my class, the people that I spent most of the time with. We certainly got to meet a lot of Messianics on Shabbat and other times. Uh, one of my friends in my class asked me, he said, so what are you going to miss about Israel? And I said, I, I don't know. I won't know until I get back to the U.S. And, um, and, and then I'll know what I miss. Uh, because you're there, you don't always know uh, until you kind of don't have it anymore, what it is that's different. And, and of course, one of the first things I noticed when I got back was the allergies, but, you know, that's how it goes. Um, so, um, so there were three things that I figured out that I missed. And I'm going to kind of, all the different lessons that I learned throughout the year, I was taking notes of things that I wanted to share when I got back, things to help Messianics, because uh, I do believe that at one point 
there's going to be more opportunities for more Messianics to be able to spend more time in Israel like I did. And I'll come back to that. So I was deliberately taking notes throughout the year. What are these lessons that I've learned? What can I share with other people? And um, I'll tell you the three things that I miss about Israel are the land, the food, and the people. And uh, and so those are kind of the three categories that I wanted to share with you today. What I miss about the land. Um, what I can tell you is that I don't miss the state of Israel. Um, I kind of do and I kind of don't. There's some there's some reasons, but that's not my emphasis. What I miss is the land, like literally the air, the dirt, the sand, the water. That's what I miss. Uh, just breathing the air. Uh, just being there where you can experience it and walk out on your porch and just relax uh, in the land. Uh, it's, it's, it's very um, refreshing. Every day is refreshing. Um, the winter is the rainy season there, and so the summer, the weather is the same. It must be very boring being a meteorologist in Israel because uh, it, it, once you get past the winter, nothing really changes. Um, so um, especially for us being here in Kansas where um, we get all kinds of different weather all the time. So in Israel, most of the land, it's it. It might be owned privately by people, but a lot of it is owned by the government. Um, and so when you buy new land, you're either buying it from somebody that already owns it or you're buying it from the government. And uh, that means that the government has a lot of flexibility to try to push different emphasis. And they're trying to move to the south. They're trying to move more to the south. Um, and it's amazing because people don't appreciate the desert. They love it if they can go there, but the reason why a lot of Israelis don't even want to go to Beersheba is just because it's not Tel Aviv. <laughs> it's, it sounds kind of funny, but it's just they think that there's nothing to do in the desert. And certainly before there was good public transportation, like trains and buses to get to Beersheba easily, um, Beersheba felt like the end of the world to most Israelis. And let me tell you, an hour drive in Israel is not the same as an hour drive here in the U.S., uh, we come 45 minutes from, from Burton to come here, and that seems like nothing here. But in Israel, 45 minutes seems like forever. It's hard to describe. But uh, time is one of the most precious resources in Israel. It's very easy to lose time and run out of time, and then all of a sudden it's Shabbat. <laughs> You're like, what, what did I do this week? Um, but Israel is very small. It changes how you perceive time. Um, it's hard to describe. Even even for me, I, I would start to complain about an hour in Israel, and it, it wasn't like that here. Um, it just doesn't feel the same. Uh, because there's so little land in Israel, uh, it is kind of expensive, and that affects a lot of, a lot of other things. Um, the way I described it to some people, we'd be in Beersheba, and we were an hour from Tel Aviv. But Beersheba is a little bit more like Wichita, Kansas City, and Tel Aviv is a lot more like New York City. And, uh, and that's what it's like in the land of Israel. My wife and I, when we like went on a drive, we went to the north of Israel for a couple days, and we took a detour, and it took us an hour longer. That was the detour going along the coast. It wasn't like it was a lot longer, but we were like, well... This reminds us of Colorado. This reminds us of Brazil. This reminds us of Europe. This reminds us of Wichita. That's how fast things would change. 
in Israel from one place to the next. You can go from Israel where it's dry and hot uh, to Tel Aviv where it's humid. Um, and uh, it's amazing how much stuff is crammed into such a small space there in Israel. Um, and and once you're really in Israel, um, everything every, everything is different once you actually start to get a perspective of what it's like for Israelis to live there. Uh, so, for instance, um, there was a Pew Research uh, done to try to compare American Jews and Israeli Jews. And American Jews were asked, what is the greatest challenge facing Israel? And for American Jews, um, they said the greatest challenge facing Israel is security. Right, all the different problems they have with rockets and and uh, terrorism and and so on. The greatest problem is security. And for Israelis, security was number two. The number one challenge facing Israelis, for Israelis, the, when when they said it themselves, was the cost of living. And and I can tell you that yeah, it's it is expensive there. One of the reasons is the land. And the rentals, uh, what it costs to just live there. It is much more expensive, but it's relative. You know, I had friends that they lived in New Jersey, and then they came to Beersheba, and they're like, well, it's cheaper to live in Beersheba than in New Jersey. But, you know, that's kind of, it's kind of relative. Again, I told you it's like going from Beersheba to Tel Aviv is like going from Kansas City to New York. Um, that's how quickly some of the prices can change on where you live in Israel. Um, there's a lot of people that one of the reasons why they move to the settlements in Judea and Samaria is because the cost of living drops so quickly. You move out of Tel Aviv, you move out of Jerusalem, and, and a lot of the cost of living can drop very drastically. Um, and so for Israelis themselves, one of the reasons why they know that security is important but they see it as number two is, for the most part, the IDF does a good job. And the average Israelis can live their normal lives without fear, for the most part. Uh, and so when you think about, hey, is it difficult to, to, to live in Israel or deal with the security situation? And I can tell you that in most places, you're really not worried about it on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, we lived in Beersheba, and yes, there were times when the rockets hit Beersheba. And so there was a time uh, back in October when there was one stray rocket that was totally unexpected. Um, I can tell you more about that story, uh, but then there was the time in this recent May where there was like a record number of rockets within 48 hours, and the kids more or less slept and lived in the bomb shelter for that time period. They canceled school, and uh, a lot of normal life came to a stop, but it came to a stop for 48 hours, and very quickly things got back to normal. And so, yeah, the security situation is a real situation. But it's not the situation that affects Israelis day to day very often. Uh, but you spend money every day. There was an Israeli that told me a joke. He said, so I, I, I came to Israel and became a millionaire. And, uh, and he said, well, how would you do that? And he says, well, I came to Israel as a billionaire. So, um, <clears throat> so you, you know, it's you can see how Israelis kind of joke about you know, how expensive it is to live in Israel. Uh, so the food, for instance, um, the I would estimate that the food in Israel is in the range of 
about double the price, and I'm really not exaggerating. I mean, the food there is really expensive. Um, there's a variety of reasons, uh, but but truthfully, the food there really is about double the price on average. Um, you go and eat out at a restaurant, you're going to spend. I mean, and so just to compare, there are McDonald's in Israel. Yes, it was about double the price. Just for comparison, there are um, there are some like American brands of foods uh, that you can get in Israel. Now, granted, it's imported and things like that, so you'd expect it to be higher. But just but even some of those American brands were still some of the cheaper ones sometimes, and they were about twice the price. Um, so food is really really expensive there. One of the reasons is that um, meat is very, very expensive because it's all according to kosher. All the meat pretty much gets according to kosher, and so there's extra requirements around how they handle the meat, get the blood out of it, and so on. Um, strict rabbinic kosher, and there's different levels of rabbinic kosher, um, but even then, most of the meat is imported from Argentina. And because they have to follow the strict kosher policies, the meat, they, they transport the cows alive from Argentina. For the most part, uh, which is another one of those humanitarian discussions about shipping them live overseas like that because it takes so long to deal with the cows alive. So just one of those subtle little things you don't know. Um, but then anywhere you go, it's it's tricked. It's generally speaking, even Jews that aren't very religious or secular, they still follow some traditions to some degree. And so you go to Pizza Hut, for instance. And there's a lot of – it's funny, I'm using American brands, but I'm using American brands you know so you can see the contrast. You can see the difference. But Pizza Hut there is kosher. So there's no meat. Okay? Uh, and so you go to a lot of congregations, and it's – is it a halavi day where it's dairy, or is it a meat day and you're not going to have dairy? Okay, so you can imagine, especially some of you Latinos here, that you know what Mexican food is like, like authentic Mexican food. You always have meat and cheese together. That is authentic Mexican. Like, well, it's not Mexican if it's not, right? But uh, and so there's like one Mexican restaurant in Israel. It's called Mexicani, and and they have no dairy whatsoever. It's only meat, um, and plus all kinds of other things. So it's it's good. It's tasty, but it doesn't taste like authentic Mexican. So I had a friend that she came back to the states for a couple weeks, and she's like, I'm just craving real Mexican food. Um, so, uh, it's different if here, you know, gen traditional Jewish kosher is the exception, not the rule, but there it's the rule rather than the exception. And you get to do whatever you want, but generally speaking, you get used to that. You change it. It was funny. We go to a rest, we go to a pizza place and we ask if they've got me and they're like, no, 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 we're kosher. We're kosher. And they point to the certificate on the wall. Um, but the other thing is it's it's much easier to, I would say, eat a little healthier there. I think the food is better, more nutritious. Um, down there in the south in Beersheba, the water under the ground is kind of briny, salty. And actually that means the vegetables there are really nutritious. They have a lot more salt and nutrition content in the vegetables. Uh, they're very good. And, um, and the vegetables are tax-free as long as you don't do anything with them. They're tax-free. There in Israel, and so we could go. Even though the food in general is expensive, we could go to the shuk and buy a big bag of fruits and vegetables from the Bedouins there, and uh, and it was probably thirty bucks for just 
whole lot of fruits and vegetables that would last us most of the week. Uh, so even though the food is a lot more expensive, we changed how we ate. And, uh, and, and we really enjoyed that. It was just good. We, just by changing our diet a little bit, we each lost weight and it felt a lot healthier. Um, it was, it was good. Um, it's hard to say exactly what is Israeli food, though. Because Israelis come from so many different places that really it's more like, well, this is Middle Eastern food. This is European food. This is German food. This is Spanish food. This is Latin food. This is, so even Israelis don't really know what's Israeli food. You know, um, because they bring it from so many different places. You know, we go, we, we were, uh, down in Beersheba, and so there was a lot of Mizrahi food. For those of you who don't know, you probably have heard of Ashkenazi Jews. You've heard of Sephardi Jews, um, you know, who are Spanish, and then there's not Mizrahi Jews or Northern, uh, European. Mizrahi Jews are Middle Eastern Jews. Um, you know, North Africa, Middle East, so Yemenites. Or, or, or Iraqi Jews, or Turkey Jews. Um, so those are Mizrahi Jews. And uh, what you may not know, um, and so this is kind of leading into the people of Israel, um, because of a lot of the persecution in Northern Europe, even leading up to the Holocaust, okay, there are a lot of, there are hundreds of kibbutzes in Israel, and many of them were actually founded before the state of Israel. Because of persecution in Europe, and they were leaving to come there, and this really helps you to understand a lot of the the secular versus religious tension in Israel, because they saw the the super religious Jews that were forced to live in um, they were in underneath Russia, and the pogroms and the and it was illegal to do certain things, and they were forced to live in what is now Poland when it was ruled by Russia, but. John, do you remember the name? I can't remember the name of the place. It's not a Moshav. It was um, I can't remember the name of it now. But it was a well. It's a, it's in Jewish culture. They know the name of it. But for a lot of Jews that came out of Europe, they wanted to be secular. They saw the overly religious and, uh, and oppressed Jews as weak. Um, and so they brought communism with them. They brought other things with them. And so they chose to be secular because they wanted to be strong. They wanted to be close to the land. They wanted to be able to do uh, to farm their own land and so on. And so that's why so much of the founding of Israel was actually on secular and communist principles uh, because they saw the religious as weak. Uh, and that really set up a lot of the secular and, and uh, tension there. So because of that, a lot of the Ashkenazis, they see it as an internal racism. Between Jews, between Jews, okay, that the Ashkenazis are in control, that they've got all the positions in in the government, they've got all the positions in the companies, they've got all the positions in the universities, and if you're Mizrahi Jew, a lot of the Mizrahi Jews, after the founding of Israel, the Ashkenazis were already there. So the Ashkenazis were trying to figure out what to do with all these Mizrahi Jews that got kicked out of Yemen and Iraq and North Africa after Israel won the War of Independence. So a lot of the Mizrahi Jews came after and in the 50s because they were kicked out. So the Ashkenazi Jews were like, well, what do we do with them? And so they sent them. You know, we don't have any room in Tel Aviv. Send them somewhere else. And so that's why a lot of the Mizrahi Jews ended up in Beersheba 
and why Beersheba was the end of the world that nobody wanted to go to, and why a lot of the Mizrahi Jews are kind of poor. Uh, but it, but to be fair, a lot of the Mizrahi Jews are the ones that have helped to build Israel. So it's interesting to see this even internal tension between Jews uh, and the conflicts that they have with themselves uh, in Israel, uh, because um, the culture there in Israel is so diverse, so international. Uh, I can't tell you how many Indians, Chinese I met there. We would go, we would go to congregation, and they would do the teaching in Russian, and then most would translate in English. But then there were also Russians who would translate, or Japanese who would translate, or Chinese who would translate uh, the languages. Um, I mean, here we're doing English and doing Spanish, and even that's not common here in America to translate two languages. I think it's amazing. Uh, but there, translating two was like low. Like you're usually translating three, four, five at a time. Uh, there, um, especially because there are a lot of Russian speakers. There's about a million in a country of nine million. There's a million Russian speakers in Israel. It's it's a big deal. Uh, certainly, there's more English speaking anywhere you go in Israel. Um, most of the signs, the road signs, other signs. There's almost always Hebrew and English. Almost always. They want English. A lot of the businesses are run in English. The startups in English. Some of the accelerator programs that I joined, they would present in English, not just in Hebrew. Uh, and so even the road signs will be in Hebrew, Arabic, and English. And then there's a lot of places where you'll also see Russian signs, but that's less rare. Uh, so very international. Um, and so uh, when it comes to Israelis, what is it like to be an Israeli? What is it like to experience the Israelis? And, um, and I can tell you that they're so used to dealing with whatever difficulties there are. They're so used to nothing quite going as planned. They're so used to the bureaucracy of the government. They're so used to the next person over not speaking the same language. Uh, that they they really become very tough but adaptable. Uh, it's hard to it's hard to really explain the kind of the level of self confidence that Israelis have. I mean, Americans, uh, it's so easy for us to just kind of be like, I can't do that, and then we don't. And Israelis are like, well, I can do that, and then they fail, but they still did it. And and they just have that gumption, that chutzpah. To just go do it. Um, I was I was telling one of my teachers in my class I wanted I wanted to do a startup, but I figured I don't know what I'm doing, so I'll get an MBA first. And she's like, "Wow, that's so not Israeli. Israelis will just do it, and they might fail, but they'll just do it." And um, and it's true. I mean, well over 97 percent of startups fail, but Israel still has the most number of successful startups. And I tell you, I mean, I was there a few weeks, and I got invited to join a startup. And everybody I knew had at least tried one startup or another. Um, and and I was trying to do a startup, so I fit in. You know, it worked. But uh, but it was everybody um, they do it. I had a, and it's so interesting to hear so many of the stories from them. So I I had a friend at a nearby um, place um, that he his uncle was a very famous mayor in Beersheba, a mayor that um, I could tell you more stories about the mayor 
hey, maybe, maybe after this we could do like a Q&A time? I don't know. We have food downstairs, right? I mean, maybe I could just sit with the mic and do like a Q&A on some other things. But um, anyway, in Israel, everybody knows everybody. Um, I, I, um, and this, this guy in my class, that his uncle was a very, very, very famous Marabir chef. Everybody knows his name. There's a street with his name on it. And, um, and he was the guy who really helped put Beersheba on the map when nobody wanted Beersheba. And nobody wanted to spend money on Beersheba. And even Ben-Gurion, uh, when he was prime minister, didn't want to spend money on building a university in Beersheba, Ben-Gurion University. And, uh, and, and yet so many years later, that's where the peace treaty with Egypt was signed, uh, was at the university there in Beersheba. And there's a lot of amazing research coming out of that university. And that's where I went, by the way. That's where I attended. Um, but uh, the, he tells me this story that he had uh, a friend of his building his house. And he had Arabs who were building his house. And his friend went to the Arabs and he said, and so I'm telling you a story. So I'm not saying I agree with this opinion. But this is what this Israeli man said. He said to the Arabs, he said, you are never going to better you are never going to get above the poverty that you have right now and the, and the arabs were offended and they were like well why why are we not going to do that and he says because you don't know how to better yourselves in your culture as the kids are growing up you simply do what your father says and you can't you can't say anything because in our culture the kids have their own opinion they argue they complain they rebel from a very young age, and we don't discourage it too much. You have to keep control, but they, and to be honest, it does get to the extreme in Israel. I've got some friends that complained about it. I'll tell you that story in a minute, but, but they rebel. So the difference is that the Israeli children grow up with the idea that they can do it, the idea that they can better themselves, the idea that they can succeed. And and the the Arab children grow up with the idea that they're going to do whatever their father did, or they have to obey their father, and they never get. And and so basically, this this Israeli man said to the Arabs, "If your father's an idiot, good luck. You know, you don't have a chance." So um, in Israel, they fail, and they love trying to do whatever they can because they'll know they'll succeed eventually. Uh, and so <clears throat> Israelis don't necessarily believe that they can do anything individually, but they do believe that as Israelis, that Israel can do just about anything. And they have many, many stories to prove it. If you've heard some of the amazing stories of uh, Entebbe or the Six-Day War, Israelis have a very good reason to believe that as Israelis as a group, they can do anything. And there's a little bit of arrogance in there, and there's a little bit of, of course, God is with them. And they know that too. But uh, it's a different mentality. Uh, they don't think that individually they can do anything. And uh, as Americans, because we're so individual, if we can't do it, we think we're done. We give up. We don't, we don't understand how to work with other people around us and to believe that as a group that we can do anything. Uh, and you don't have to be able to do everything yourself. You just have to know the right people and do your part. 
And Israelis understand that really, really well. They just continue to keep going, and everything works. And, and the way that they can work together uh, is amazing because everybody talks, everybody knows everybody. So, for instance, I knew a girl that she hadn't even done Aliyah yet. She was from Romania, but she was working on Aliyah. But you talk about how tight-knit. You ever heard the uh, six degrees from Kevin Bacon kind of joke? You guys remember that? Okay. And there's actual research to show that pretty much any two people anywhere in the world, you are no more than six degrees of separation from each other. Okay. You know somebody. They know somebody else. They know somebody else. Okay. And so you never know. Well, just being in Israel, I knew this girl. She knew Netanyahu's doctor. So I was three degrees of separation from Benjamin Netanyahu just by showing up in Israel. I mean, this is how tight-knit people can be in Israel. Uh, They're like a big family that support each other. We felt like um, we can actually trust the average stranger with actually caring about our kids. If our kids ran out in the road, the people would slam on their brakes and then point their finger at us. But it's because they cared about the kids. And then it happened one time that one of our kids started standing on the road. We yelled at him. The guy slammed on his brakes, and he's going like this. I'm like, yeah, Ken, Ken, Avanti, Avanti. I know, I know. And, um, and then the next lady walks by, and she's pointing her finger at my kid. Like, no, 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 no. You know, they, they raise each other. Nobody, it's so funny, nobody raises their own kids. But everybody raises everybody else's kids. And um, and so I had a friend who had spent time in the U.S. and wanted to live in the U.S. He kind of complained about it. And he said, so when, so he said, Israeli kids are crazy. Nobody raises them. They're just, and I said, okay, I get it. But the adults aren't like that. As crazy as the kids are, the adults are not actually that crazy and undisciplined. They're really not. Like it is a culture. They take care of each other for the most part. They argue to no end, but they take care of each other. And, um, and argue over some of the stupidest stuff sometimes. But still, you know, they take care of each other. And uh, um, and I said, okay, so tell me, when do Israeli kids grow up? And he said, oh, okay, all right. He said, you graduate high school, you go to the IDF, they put an M16 in your hand and you grow up. Okay, that's what it's like for Israelis, for most of them, Okay. Um, and and it creates this common culture. There's a lot of groups of people that they start in middle school, they become groups of friends, they go through high school, they go through the IDF together, and they stay friends for life. And you can do that there because it's not like the military here where you get sent off. Everybody goes through the military, and even when you're stationed somewhere, you're no more than a couple hours away. You can go home for the weekends when you're off. Um but it's 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 interesting because Israelis are they're under a lot of stress and it's different. Like I know what the stresses are like here in, in America. I know the stresses, um, and um, and I can tell you um, from personal experience, I that the stresses and the way we're handling the stresses are largely of our own making, unfortunately. Um, but but I can tell. When 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 the pressure is on and you start to see what kind of stuff comes out the side, the extreme situations and the people that deal with it, um, you know, um, you know, when I talk to Israelis and then the news comes on about some other mass shooting, 
in the U.S. It was an interesting conversation. I didn't know how to handle it. I really didn't. Um, and one of the things I've realized coming back to America is that we're all under the same stresses, but when you see these problems coming out the side, it's it's all coming from the same root. So when you think about the mass shootings or you think about um, how the suicide rates are going up or when you think about um, our drug problems, the opioid crises or things like that, I mean, the reason why there's so many drug cartel problems in Mexico is because the drugs are coming here. So we're all under the same stresses, but everybody handles it differently, and we're all handling it really poorly. But what's interesting is the stresses here are largely of our own making. The stresses in, in Israel, a lot of them are external. A lot of them are coming from people wanting to kill Israel. And so they band together, they support each other, and, uh, and I, I dare say that that's one of the reasons why we're struggling here in, in the U.S. There are people that have said that uh, most people who get addicted on drugs, they don't need rehab. They need friends, right? They need people to support them uh, because otherwise they just go right back to it. And, um, and I think that's – I'm starting to realize now that's the common root problem. I mean the things that I mentioned, I've had those deliberate things affect people in my family. I've had someone in my family commit suicide. I've had someone in my family who was in a mass shooting. So I've experienced these things, and I can tell you they're all coming from the same pressures, the same difficulties um, that we need to work together. I think that's a lesson that we can learn from Israelis, the way that when these pressures come on, they come together. They don't separate. They'll argue to no end about all kinds of stuff. You know, They'll be on the sidewalk, and the guy who's cleaning the sidewalk is arguing about the stuff that's coming onto the sidewalk, and it's like, you get that – you get that off. And she's like, what? I Just give me some space. You know, go away. And it's, it's like, but it's on the sidewalk. I'm clean in here. Get it out of my way. And it's just all kinds of silly stuff. But then, then the rockets happen. And it's, how are you? Are you okay? You staying safe? Everybody okay? You feel some stress? When you read reports about a mass shooting here in, in the U.S., and it's these, this many people died, this many people got injured. When you read reports about the rockets in Israel, it's maybe somebody died, maybe somebody got injured, and most of them, by the way, get injured running to the shelter instead of getting injured by the rockets. And then there's a third thing they'll mention. They'll say this many people were treated for emotional shock. And they just have this, this other mentality of caring about how the next person feels. To the point that even their medical staff, when they're in stressful situations like that, will treat people for emotional shock. And I know why we don't do this in Israel, because we're like, I'm sorry, you're not, I don't want to pay a stupid ER bill or a, um, or an ambulance bill for somebody treating me for emotional shock. So we don't do it. Right? We don't want to get help. We don't want to ask people for help. We don't want to talk through these stresses or these issues that are happening to us. Uh, but there they do, and they care about it, and it's and it's public. Like you can talk about it with almost anybody, and just say, "Oh my God, I'm so scared about this or whatnot," or complain about something, and just get it out and talk about it. And we don't do that, and we need to. We need to talk about it. It's what the community's for. Um, you know, this should be a trusted place where we can talk about some more of the stresses and get it out and deal with it. Because sometimes you just gotta. You you it's. Sometimes it's like passing a kidney stone or something. You just kind of get it out, and then you'll be able to recover. 
even if it's painful coming out. Um, but the culture, I, I want to say it's it's not it's not necessarily to Jews' credit that they are this way. It it is and it isn't. It a lot of this really does come from them keeping the Torah, which means some of it's to their credit, and really a lot of it is to God's credit for giving them the Torah, so that even the average Jew. Even if they're secular, I've had so many Jews tell me I'm secular, I don't believe in God. If you're an American Jew and you're secular, you don't believe in God, you just don't go to synagogue anymore. If you're an Israeli Jew and you're secular, you don't believe in God, many of them still try to keep many of the commandments because they see it as a heritage to pass on, that they need to pass on. And it's part of being Israeli, it's part of being Jewish. And there were many of them that said, I don't believe in God, but I still... I still try to do these things and keep Shabbat in other ways. So they don't drive on Shabbat, but many of them it's still drive if they need to, but for the most part, um, if they don't have to, they just avoid it. And Shabbat really does, Shabbat is everything. Shabbat is really everything. Even people that you wouldn't think are religious, they don't wear a kippah during the week, you'll see them on Shabbat, they're walking to the nearest synagogue. They'll walk there Friday evening, they'll walk back Saturday morning, and um, and then they know their neighbors. They talk with their neighbors because they all go to the same synagogue, and they talk. And it's this synagogue or the other synagogue a couple blocks away because there's that many synagogues around that you can go to. You can walk to any synagogue you want. What time do I need to be done? Five minutes, got it. Okay. Um, everyone cleans before Shabbat. Everyone. I mean, it's it's wonderful. Probably one of the things that's changed for us about keeping what we do is that we we clean before Shabbat now, and it 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 does help spiritually. Everybody has a meal where they try to invite friends. Um, it's amazing. Um, what are the messianics like in Israel? Um, I would say any of the range that you can think of for Messianics here in the U.S. in terms of those who may emphasize Jewishness or those who may emphasize Torah or those who may emphasize you know, spiritual healing or other things, there's a whole big range right, of who does what. And you have all the same range in, in Israel, but it's, it is different. It's very, very different, um, largely because the – the people who aren't Messianic are not like the people who aren't Messianic here, right? For many of us, we come from a Christian culture, okay? And it's and, and so many of us look more like Christians than we look like Jews. And there, because many of them are coming from a Jewish culture, they look more Jewish, And it's but it's the Jews who are complaining about these Christians in our midst, even though they're, they're Messianic and they still maintain much of their Jewishness. And... Uh, and so it's different. A lot of them um, don't want to look like the Orthodox. A lot of Israeli culture, this this religious secular uh, conflict is it's always been there. But they try to maintain a reasonable, respectful balance. You can even see it in the politics right now. Um, Messianics have to deal with that too. They deal with this struggle between how much do you integrate among the secular, how much do you integrate among the religious, and they have different varying degrees of it. And it's it's not easy anyway. They're all persecuted, by the way. They're all persecuted. Whether they look more like Baptist Christians or they look more like Orthodox Jews, they're all persecuted to one degree or another. 
But it's gotten to the point, most of the persecution now primarily comes from the extreme Orthodox. The rest of Israeli society doesn't persecute them as much anymore. More open to talking about it, more open to new ideas. I even had one girl tell me that the first that that sometimes Jews talk about Yeshua as the first reformist in in Judaism who tried to bring things back and change the common things, and they have some respect for Yeshua. Um, so what I can tell for us is what I can say for us as Messianics um, is that uh, we're still tourists. If you have the opportunity to go to Israel as a tourist, great, do it. But in a lot of ways, we still act like tourists when we go to Israel. Uh, and it's very different if you live there. It's very different to live among them. Um, and I think that we need to start to connect with Israel in a more personal way. And if you have the opportunity to go to Israel, don't just, don't just, go, don't just go to the tourist sites. Find a congregation to go visit, to go meet. Um, I can tell you about a few. But meet people. Get to know people. And and to be honest, I, I hate to say it, but sometimes the Christian sites are not the best place to go to anyway. The, 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 the national parks in Israel are exquisite. Exquisite, the national parks in Israel. And most of the Christian places are not national parks. But a lot of the Jewish places actually are. They're also national parks. Um, and and it's it's amazing to visit them, but still the people um it's 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 different when you get to know the people. I consider it a privilege that I have Israelis as friends now. When you saw me earlier, I took a picture of the Torah scroll um I'm gonna send it later to uh a Turkish Jewish friend of mine because for those of you who don't know, that's like a three four hundred year old scroll from Turkey, and I want to send that to my friend from Turkey. Um, that was in my classes with me, and I consider it a privilege to have them as friends. Um, you know, it's funny, and they'll and they want to do it. By the way, Israelis love Americans. Most Israelis wish they could live here. You know, uh, they really do. I had a a couple that um, they both had American citizenship, okay, but they were also Israelis, and their parents complained to them like, "Why did you marry each other? You wasted your American citizenship. You're supposed to share that." You know, you go marry an Israeli, you go marry a different Israeli, but now you're wasting your American citizenship because uh, they want to come here. And so many of them were like, why are you this crazy guy that wants to come live in Israel? We all want to go the other way. Um, and I can tell you, you as Americans, you, you don't realize how much we're taking for granted here. You don't. You just don't appreciate how much we're taking for granted. Uh, but you would know that if you knew Israelis. You would know that if you had them as friends because they could tell you what they've went through, where they could tell you their experiences, um, and you would benefit from them too. And they, they are more than happy to accept you, more than happy to have you as a friend as long as you love them. Uh, so let me real quick read a poem that, um, that I think kind of sums this up. It's called Tourists by a Jewish uh, poet called Yehuda Amichai. Visits of condolence is all we get from them. They squat at the Holocaust memorial. They put on grave faces at the Wailing Wall, and they laugh behind heavy curtains in their hotels. They have their pictures taken together with our famous dead at Rachel's tomb and Herzl's tomb and on Ammunition Hill. Those are places in Israel that are memorials. 
They weep over our sweet boys and lust after our tough girls and hang up their underwear to try quickly to dry quickly in cool blue bathrooms. Once I sat on the steps at the at a gate at David's tower, which is in Jerusalem. I placed my two heavy baskets at my side. A group of tourists was standing around their guide, and I became their target marker. You see that man with the baskets? Just right of his head, there's an arch from the Roman period. Just right of his head. But he's moving, he's moving, I said to myself. Redemption will come only if their guide tells them. You see that arch from the Roman period? It's not important, but next to it, left and down a bit, sits a man who brought who bought fruit and vegetables for his family. And so what I can tell you is um, Israel as we know it today, it's still not our home. It's not the Israel we're hoping for. But it's one step closer than what we've experienced here. It's enough closer that you can start to get a sense of what it's like to live as a community, what it's like to live in a land that is good for you, uh, what it's like to have food that you just feel better by eating the food. Um, it's a little bit closer, but it's still not the kingdom. And I can tell you that it's by God's mercy and grace that the Jews live in the land right now. Period. Period. They do deserve it. They don't deserve it. Whatever. God's doing what he's doing. Just watch and follow along. And for us, it's by God's grace that we're here and that we can do these things. And yes, America has a lot of good things about it. Uh, and who knows what God's still doing with America. Don't Don't lose that hope yet. And I would say that it's not so much about America as much as it is about Americans. Like I was saying today, it's not just about loving Israel, it's about loving Israelis. And I think that that's what we need to, that's the attitude we need to have with each other. Is it's about the people around you, the people that you can care about. Um, everything was more difficult in Israel, but more rewarding. And I think it's just because they're not taking things for granted that they know they can lose. So, um, you know, be careful of the things that get in the way.